The New York Times, yeah. this past Sunday, there was an article about the first black punk rock group called Death in the 70s, and they found these old recordings. I was just trying to, I was trying to create an idea of how to expand rock. My name is Henry Rollins. Henry, I think I know you. Oh, I see. You're a character now. I, well, I just do whatever I feel. You are gonna make me scream like a white lady. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Deep Tracks in Rock History. I am your non-jejun host, Doug. Live, laugh, level up, McCullough. Alan Freed once said, It's natural that kids should look for excitement and thrills. Well, I'd rather that they find it in the theater than in street gangs. And Stanley Kubrick once said, The film is, or should be, more like music than like fiction. It should be a progression of moods and feelings. Today we're going to talk about three films that, despite having a lot of music in them, didn't have much of that progression of moods and feelings that Kubrick spoke about. In fact, they barely had plots. But they definitely sought to have the excitement and thrills that Freed spoke about. And they might have even kept a few kids out of street gangs. You never know. So by now, my listening audience should remember quite handily the significance of the film Blackboard Jungle, i.e. the first film to feature a rock song in its soundtrack. You'll also remember that critics of rock music jumped on the numerous allegations of teen rioting in the theaters, but not everyone looked at the teen response as a bad thing. Some people realized that this was possibly a key to getting even more of a piece of this coveted new market known as the teen market. The so in order to cash in on what had been started by Blackboard Jungle, there was a sort of half-hearted attempt in 1955, actually, at incorporating rock music into film when a made-for-TV movie called Rock and Roll Review was released. It's not really a movie, though. It's uh, more like a variety show. I mean, the, you know, basically the whole thing is just a guy emceeing a series of performances by rhythm and blues artists. Well, ladies and gentlemen, once again, I have the pleasure of being your host for the next 30 minutes on Harlem Variety Review. And for your entertainment, some of the greatest names... However, it did well enough to garner a little attention, and this is where I'll quote from John A. Jackson's book, Big Beat Heat. The popularity of the Blackboard Jungle and the release of Rock and Roll Review did not escape the eyes and ears of Hollywood film producer Sam Katzman, a B-movie specialist who, during his lengthy career, had not turned out anything less than a box office moneymaker. Katzman decided to do the Blackboard Jungle one better and make a film that not only featured rock and roll music, but actually showed the performers in action. He would improve on Rock and Roll Review's format by adding a storyline. To begin with, Katzman signed Bill Haley himself to perform Rock Around the Clock, which became the film's title, the song that had developed into a youthful anthem of sorts after its inclusion in The Blackboard Jungle. Then Jackson points out how our boy Alan Freed got involved in this project. With a wary eye on promotional outlets for his production... Katzman sought Alan Freed to appear in Rock Around the Clock. Freed was initially given a small part, like not much more than a cameo, really, which he he actually said he wouldn't take it unless they made it a bigger role. This this tidbit of information actually helps explain one of the you know seeming anomalies in the film, if you ever watch it. Um, you see, Freed doesn't actually appear in the film until two-thirds of the way through it. And then when he does, he's like suddenly this major character in the final act of the movie. So it kind of breaks the old rule that you shouldn't introduce a major character in the third act of a film. But when you understand what went on behind the scenes, you know, including the fact that they were throwing this thing together in just a matter of weeks and they didn't have a lot of time for extensive rewrites, you realize, oh, it was originally just a brief cameo near the end of the film that had to be quickly revamped into a sort of deus ex machina in the storyline to rescue the protagonists and ultimately rock and roll. 
The film itself was, as Jackson put it, a pro-rock editorial aimed at the adult segment of society that opposed both Freed and the music. In the movie, as we will see in a moment, the antagonists against rock are won over in an easily achieved happy ending. However, Jackson points out that Freed was not to achieve in real life the proselytization of his foes. That doesn't mean that the film wasn't a success, however. In fact, as Jackson also points out, As for the teenage audience, Rock Around the Clock's music was what they craved, and Katzman's production provided plenty of it. But like all rock-related entertainment at this time, it was not without some form of infamy, of course. So, once again, quoting Jackson, Released in April 1956, Rock Around the Clock achieved instant notoriety thanks to incidents of violence such as occurred after a group of youngsters left a theater in Minneapolis and snake-danced about town, smashing windows, causing the theater manager to cancel subsequent screenings of the film. I'm not sure what snake dancing looks like, I... Should probably Google that. But that's not all. It gets crazier with the film's release abroad. First overseas reports of rioting in the wake of Rock Around the Clock's showing emanated from Dublin, Ireland, which prompted several West German theaters to attempt, unsuccessfully, to obtain anti-riot insurance before showing the film in their country. Egyptian authorities, and this one's my favorite, thought of Rock Around the Clock as an Eisenhower-led plot to encourage Middle East turmoil by undermining the country's morale. (laughs) In Great Britain, the movie was shown in more than 300 theaters without incident until a group of teens exited a South London movie house dancing and chanting Bill Haley's Mambo Rock, heard briefly in the film, and stalled traffic on the city's famed Tower Bridge. When the English tabloids blew the incident into a full-scale riot, one theater chain banned Sunday viewings of the movie. I'm not sure how they thought banning Sunday viewings of the movie was going to solve anything. But anyway, um, here is where uh, Jackson actually adds kind of a fun detail. Somewhere in Liverpool, a 15-year-old would-be rocker came away from a local theater disappointed. There had been no riot at the screening of Rock Around the Clock that John Lennon had attended. However, not everyone was jumping onto the Blame Rock bandwagon. So once again, borrowing from Jackson. Britain's music newspaper, the New Musical Express, editorialized with a large degree of lucidity that, quote, Hooligans were hooligans before Rock Around the Clock was ever exhibited. They have not suddenly become undisciplined and irresponsible because they have heard Bill Haley and his rocking tempo, end quote. And then Jackson adds this juicy detail. Despite, or perhaps because of, the hubbub over the controversial film, Queen Elizabeth scrapped a scheduled Buckingham Palace showing of The Cane Mutiny in favor of a showing of Rock Around the Clock. Um... I actually don't remember that part in Netflix's The Crown. Anyway, the film's unexpected controversiality helped give it greater exposure, of course, as that's usually how these things go. And uh, this even boosted its revenue. Quoting again from Jackson, Rock Around the Clock grossed almost five times the $500,000 it cost to produce. As a result of this, more studios, of course, wanted to jump on this new bandwagon. And as such, Rock Around the Clock became the prototype for subsequent rock and roll films. I want to make a couple of points here, though, before we move on. Up to this point, rock music had yet to really gain much traction on television, which still more or less ignored the music on the whole. Uh, You did have American Bandstand that went on the air in 1952, but we'll talk about that more when we talk about Dick Clark. Um, But uh, with the success of Rock Around the Clock, Freed was actually offered a gig hosting a weekly music show on CBS. The other point I want to make is in the films themselves, despite being rock and roll themed, the rockers themselves were, as Jackson put it, treated as second-class citizens on the screen. 
Few rock and rollers received speaking parts, and their appearances had little, if any, relevance to the film's stories. Now, to be fair, this is understandable. It's usually pretty easy to spot a cameo appearance, uh, even if you don't even know who you know the person is that's making the cameo, because their acting skill is just generally well below that of everyone else on screen. You know, and this is often endearing, such as Neil deGrasse Tyson's appearances on Big Bang Theory and Stargate Atlantis. But sometimes it's painful, such as Elon Musk in that Mario Brothers skit on Saturday Night Live. I am not the evil, I just misunderstood. But then, of course, there are those cameos that are just perfect and completely steal the show, such as every Stan Lee cameo in every Marvel movie. Excelsior! Anyway, moving on. Bill Haley had the most speaking parts of any of the rockers in the film, and I'll add, didn't do half bad in his acting debut. Also, all of the characters in the film are fictional, except for the rock artists and Freed who all play themselves in this fictional world. So one thing I should point out as we discuss the first couple scenes of the movie is that to a large extent, I think, people will have forgotten how much early rock was tied in with dancing. For many people, it was seen as the new wave of dance music after big bands had died and crooners had taken over. And of course, you can't dance to crooners. So for a lot of people, there was a legit search for something that would revive dance music. In fact, Bill Haley, you might remember, was one of these people. Part of his evolution into one of rock's pioneers was due to his search for a new sound that would get the kids dancing again. And you all might remember this is something uh, that his son Bill Jr. pointed out during my interview with him a couple of episodes back. You also might remember from last episode that most of Alan Freed's rock shows were often billed as dances rather than just concerts. So it's no surprise then that the movie opens up with a dance. But it's kind of a dead dance. In fact, the whole thing's a total flop. There's a few people on the dance floor barely shuffling about in a sort of almost robotic haze. And the live music is being provided by a big band with a conductor who looks so bored he makes C-SPAN viewers look like evangelicals during the rapture. At the end of the show, the band's manager, Steve Hollis, has to break the news that they don't have any other gigs. Well, that's it, Georgie. The band's through here. We're canceled out. That's the third time on this tour. What kind of a manager are you? How do you expect to draw crowds in a town of this size? This wouldn't have happened if you'd listened to me a long time ago. I tell you, all the big bands are breaking up. People aren't dancing anymore, they're listening. Oh, so I'm supposed to break up my band? The public's going in for sounds, Georgie. They want to hear small groups, vocalists, novelty combos. Sure, that's right, Steve. Put the blame on everyone but yourself. As the band's manager, you do a bad job of selling us. A bad job of selling? You listen to me, the only thing that stayed up to date in this band of yours is your watch. Maybe I should book you into a schoolhouse during fire drill. You might be able to clear them out fast with the kind of music you You're play. fired. Good. So Steve Hollis quits slash is fired and is joined by the band's bass player, a guy named Corny LaSalle, and uh, they head off to figure out what to do next. Along the way, they decide to stop in a small town for dinner and notice all the teens excitedly heading off to a dance. Curious as to what type of music could possibly be drawing this type of a crowd for a dance, they attend it as well. As they enter the dance hall, they find a room full of teens exuberantly dancing to a live band playing rock and roll. The band performing? Bill Haley and the Comets, of course. Hollis and LaSalle go around trying to figure out what kind of dancing this is and what kind of music is being played. What is that outfit playing up there? I don't know. It isn't boogie. It isn't jive and it isn't swing. It's kind of all of them. Hey, sister, what do you call that exercise you get? It's rock and roll, brother, and we're rocking tonight. The whole scene... Um, then becomes kind of an exercise in Hollywood writers trying too hard to capture teen vernacular. What? 
Say, pardon me, friend. Would you tell me what the name of that band is? It's later, like... man. Later. I'm gone now. I don't dig nothing. But you can also catch some echoes of real life in this line here. Miss, pardon me. Do you know the name of that orchestra that's playing? Crazy, man. Crazy. Which was obviously taken from Bill Haley's real life experience of when, um, at after performing at a, at a school dance, asked some of the teens afterwards what they thought of the music he'd performed, and one of the kids responded with, Crazy Man Crazy, which of course would then become the name of one of Bill Haley's hit songs and also the name of Bill Jr.'s biography about his dad. This is a point where all the dancers back away and then make room for a single pair of dancers who bust out moves that are like way more advanced than anyone else there. And you actually come to find out that this is a brother-sister combo who accompany Haley in the comments to all of their gigs in order to get the crowd energized with dancing. It's, it's actually kind of a similar thing to what rap artists would do later in the 1980s with specially tasked dancers who'd danced during their song breaks, or as these performers would come to be called, break dancers. But that's getting way ahead of our rock narrative. Back to Rock Around the Clock. Hollis tells Haley that he wants to be their manager, and he wants to get them bigger gigs outside of this tiny little town. However, Haley won't agree to anything that his two dancers won't also agree to, and uh, the girl in the dancing duo begins asking Hollis some hard questions about what percentage he's looking at taking as his cut. She doesn't like his answer that he gives, and she, uh, in turn, gives a much lower figure. He proceeds to try to haggle with her, but she will not budge. So the would-be manager leaves with his tail between his legs. Leave it to a woman to make all the trouble. Steve's not ready to throw in the towel yet, though. This leads to a plan that he concocts in which he's going to woo the girl by taking her on a date to the lake in order to get her to drop her guard and then hopefully raise the percentage that she'll agree to. And uh, in the process of this, it leads to this extraordinary pickup line. I was wondering how you'd look in a bathing suit. I bet you were. I must have my imagination overhauled. You uh, even look better than what I had dreamed up. Thanks. However... Uh, she is more than just a silly girl and demonstrates some refreshing strength and independence as she turns the tables on him and the power dynamic in the conversation shifts. This would be surprisingly progressive except for the fact that she ultimately uses her womanly wiles to get him to agree to a much lower figure. Of course, we haven't evolved much as a species, right? And, uh, you know, women today are still often portrayed on the big screen as getting their way simply through looks and manipulation. But in the end, Steve Hollis, who is obviously much older than the girl, like by about a decade or so, attempts to engage in her youthful lingo with this horribly corny joke. Remember what Christopher Columbus once said, the world is no square. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> After that, Steve has to go back to talk to his boss at the talent agency. And this is where the movie introduces a character who, again, had the potential to be surprisingly progressive for the era but still fell back on many of the common tropes. You see, Steve's boss is a woman. She's also a very strong, successful woman. There's a scene in which she rebuffs a man's approaches with a line that is definitely commentary on women's roles in the 1950s. You know, these, uh, these lily-white hands are working too hard. So you'd rather put them in dishwater? However, more often than not, the way she's portrayed as being strong is usually done through portraying her as power-hungry. I shudder at myself sometimes when I think of the things I do. It's so nice to have power. She is also a spurned ex-lover of Steve's, which kind of undermines the power dynamic between her as the boss and him as the underling. Uh, in fact, she wants to marry him, but he's not in love with her. As a result, her business dealings with him are often backpacked with amorous ulterior motives. I'll play a clip here that demonstrates this. Then why did you come here? 
business. A favor? No, I, I think I can make some money for you. I never discuss business during business hours. <laughs> That's logical. How about over dinner? I have to go to the Chez Suzette tonight to talk to Tony Martinez about his new booking. Don't worry about it. It's on me. The introduction of Steve's boss, whose name is Corinne, sets up a love triangle in the movie. Corinne wants Steve, and Steve and the dancer girl named Lisa want each other. Anyway, later in the movie, another character is introduced who is a guy who's in love with Corinne, which kind of makes it a love square, a love box. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. Anyway, during Steve and Corinne's date, Corinne immediately sees the way that Steve is talking about this younger girl, Lisa, and becomes jealous. And the rest of her business decisions are based completely on jealousy, which again feeds into common tropes of the time. And even unfortunately today, that women make business decisions based on emotion. But more importantly in this scene, because I really don't want this episode to just be me looking down my nose at a 1950s film with my self-righteous 21st century hindsight, Steve says something about the importance of having these two dancers accompany Bill Haley's act. Suppose we forget about the dance act and talk about the band. But they work together. Look, it takes a great dance team to demonstrate rock and roll. The young folks all over the country want to see how it's done so they can do it too. So two things he said in that clip uh, are important for our understanding of rock at this time and how it will be marketed. First, when he says it takes a great dance act to demonstrate rock and roll, you'll notice the idea inherent in that statement that rock and roll is a dance as much as a music. And then this line, the young folks all over the country want to see how it's done so they can see it too. This concept right here is really the core of American Bandstand, which will become one of the number one outlets for disseminating rock, but does so through the medium of televised teen dancing. Moving on with the plot, because of Corinne's jealousy of Lisa, she wants Steve's new business venture to fail. Mwahahaha. She knows that he's pinned all his hopes on this newfangled rock music, and her hope is that if she can sabotage it, He'll have to come crawling back to her. I want that band to fail, and I want that girl to go back to wherever she came from. So in order to do this, she purposely strong-arms Steve into having to book a show in which she's confident the crowd and the venue will boo Haley and his Comets off the stage. So Haley and his Comets are booked to play a dance at a snooty private school known for its uber-conservatism. <laughs> so Haley and his Comets are booked to play a dance at a snooty private school known for its uber-conservatism. Conservativism. Conservativism. That is a hard word to say. So Haley and his comets are booked to play a dance at a snooty private school known for its uber conservatism. And of course, during the music, some of the school admin reacts as Corinne Hope. Infamous barbaric. But the kids love the music and begin dancing, especially after Lisa and her brother go out onto the dance floor and begin busting out some moves that get the rest of the kids excited to join in. I'll also point out that in the scene I was just talking about, the kids were clapping to the music on beats two and four. So, you know, kudos to the private school snobs. Corinne is, of course, angry in defeat and decides to blacklist Steve's act from all of her establishments with which she has connections and control. And, of course, the heroes seem momentarily beaten, but not defeated. This is where Alan Freed comes in. They hear him doing his show on the radio, and they realize he can hook them up with a new venue that will give them the exposure they need. At first, Steve isn't sure that they'll be able to convince Freed to give their act a chance, but then his sidekick, Corny LaSalle, steps in to remind Steve that they <laughs> conveniently had loaned Freed some money back in the day when he was still a small fish and that he owed them a favor. This becomes a leverage they need to ensure that Freed will give them a chance. It's also kind of a funny meta plot point because, as we discussed last episode, 
Freed was often borrowing money from people due to his rampant spending. So I'm not sure if the writers put that in there on purpose or if it's just kind of a funny coincidence. Anyway, the show they do with Freed goes so well that Corinne can no longer ignore them. You know, she's at last convinced to accept that Steve's new clients are going to be a smash hit. And if she values success in any way, she'll bring them back into the fold and work with them instead of against them. But this is where she comes up with a new scheme. She decides she's going to trick Lisa into agreeing to a clause that states she can't be married for three years after signing her contract with Corinne's talent agency. She prefaces her reasoning for this clause thusly. College boys will be voting you the girl they'd most want to get caught in a compromising situation with. My agency will be spending a fortune on your publicity and exploitation. The bigger you and the boys become, the more money we'll all make. But you're the only girl with the outfit. The only one that means S-E-X, like a movie star. I want my investment protected. And again, I'm not sure we've evolved as a species since then. But anyway, uh, with that groundwork laid, she presents the clause itself. All right, then. These are the facts. If you get married, you won't be worth a darn to me or yourself. The kind of public you're going to get won't want to think of you as a married woman. In short, you'll have to sign a clause that for the life of the contract, three years... You will not marry. Corinne helps them put on another show with Alan Freed, bigger than all the others. And it is during this show that Corinne finds out that Steve and Lisa are married. What, what, what? This, of course, outrages her and she threatens to sue Steve and Lisa for breach of contract until Steve points out that they were already married before Lisa signed the contract. And the contract specifically stated that she couldn't be married for three years after signing the contract. So, the messers become the messies. You would think Corinne would continue to be upset about being foiled, but instead she just laughs it off and agrees that Steve has gotten the better of her and the whole thing is wrapped up with a very convenient ending with everyone happy, including the antagonist. The movie is obviously meant to showcase the music as evidenced by the fact that every performance they had by a rock artist was shown in its full. No songs were edited down for time. Another thing to note is at the end, while Haley and the Comets are playing the movie's final song, which is of course Rock Around the Clock, it shows the Comets doing many of their on-stage shenanigans that they were known for, i.e. hefting the bass fiddle up in the air or riding it like a horse, jumping around, so on. Now you might be wondering why I pointed out a lot of the non-rock music things that I did in the movie. Um, that's because rock music, since its inception, has been embroiled in social changes of almost every kind. So this movie, while falling into some of the cliché tropes of the time, as I pointed out, it did still show women in strong roles, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with men in business, asking men on dates, and making autonomous decisions. That isn't to say that rock was some vanguard for the women's liberation movement that would follow a decade later, but the movement surrounding the music was certainly upsetting the apple cart of many of America's stereotypes at the time. And like I intimated earlier, it's easy for me with my modern day hindsight to look back and see where they still fell into many of those stereotypes. And it's easy for me to cast judgment. But analyzing history isn't about making ourselves feel better by judging the bad behavior of ignorant people. That's what reality television is for. What <laughs> oh, um, really, to my mind, analyzing history is a way for me to take stock of my own views within my current setting consistently question if I'm conforming to erroneous polls and pressures of my day. I ask myself all the time, how will my views be viewed in 70 years? Will they be viewed with the same view in which I view the views of the people in the 1950s? And how many more times can I say the word view before we move on to the next part of this episode? The answer is none because we are moving on to the next part of this episode. Around the time the rock around the clock was making a big splash, things were actually deteriorating for Freed back at the radio station. In fact, many people at WINS were getting annoyed with how things were going. 
You see, the station owner had begun implementing a number of cost-cutting practices, one of which included relocating the station to a sort of dive location outside Manhattan with a giant four-story tall Coca-Cola thermometer mounted on the outside. Freed's program began to be broadcast overseas through Radio Luxembourg, giving him even more national exposure. That, combined with his increased attention on screen, led Freed to start treating WINS with a little disdain. You're weak! And I've outgrown you. He began working from home, which doesn't sound so strange to us nowadays, but at the time that was kind of a big no-no. And it certainly ruffled a lot of feathers with station management. Um, He'd actually set up a little in-home studio so he could do his show from there, but WINS pushed back hard, demanding that he do his shows in the studio at the station. He finally agreed to do this, but he still did all other work at home. In fact, having all of his fan mail delivered there instead of the station. And when he did come into the station to do his shows, he generally showed up just minutes before going on air rather than the more traditional hour or two beforehand to do prep work. Thus, it should come as no surprise when he took a leave of absence in 1957 in order to return to Hollywood and film his second rock-themed film. It was produced through Columbia Pictures, which is the same as the first one, and this time he would have a leading role in the film. The movie was originally going to be called Hi-Fi, but the producers eventually settled on the title Don't Knock the Rock, which was actually a a common phrase used by Freed, and if I'm being honest, matches the film's plot much better than Hi-Fi. Don't Knock the Rock follows the story of a fictional rock artist named Arnie Haynes, played by Alan Dale. Other than Arnie, however, the movie follows the same MO as Rock Around the Clock, with all of the rock artists, plus Freed, playing themselves. The movie once again had Bill Haley and his comets, plus a number of other artists, one of whom was none other than my man, Little Richard. In fact, this would be Little Richard's first time on the big screen. It certainly wouldn't be his last. But this is where I want to borrow from Jackson again, as he made some interesting points regarding the musical lineup in this film. Musically speaking, Don't Knock the Rock was a notch below Rock Around the Clock. The film featured Dale's pop-oriented version of the title song instead of Haley's more popular rendition. By the time of Don't Knock the Rock's release, Haley himself was a has-been in the United States, thanks to Elvis Presley. The performances by the Treneers and the Applejacks were pedestrian at best. Only Little Richard and his driving seven-piece combo saved the film with high-power performances of Long Tall Sally and Tutti Frutti. And Jackson's not wrong. The most exciting performance in the movie really is Little Richard's. But what's sort of funny about that is, if you watch the movie, this is the most sedate you'll ever see Little Richard on stage. In fact, I remember when I first watched it and I I thought to myself, wow, they must have really reined him in for this film. Either that or they spiked his drink with Valium. But that says something about Little Richard, that even when his dial is turned all the way down to zero, he still outrocks just about anybody else on stage. Anyway, as I said, the film follows the story of the only fictional rock artist in the movie, Arnie Haynes, who ironically is more of a crooner than a rocker, although he definitely tries to channel Elvis's vocal stylings in his singing. Don't Knock the Rock also features a love triangle with two girls and a guy, with one of them being manipulative and controlling, and the other being sweet and innocent. The movie begins with Haynes being mobbed by fans, mostly female, and even has the cliché scene in which his clothes are torn off as he's trying to get away, which actually really happened to Bill Haley one time, incidentally, um, though, of course, not quite as extreme as depicted in the movie. Haynes is able to escape his adoring fans, and uh, he makes his way to his penthouse where there's a party going on already. And the the party scene itself is is an extended dance sequence showing some pretty phenomenal dance moves on couches, tables, pianos. I mean, it's legit. But of course, this scene is in there because, as I said earlier, rock music and visual media was being paired with dancing. 
When Arnie arrives, they all stop dancing and come rushing over to him. And it's, it's kind of weird because all these people are actually just fans who couldn't get into the theater to see him perform there. My name is Tina Stevens. Oh, hi. I'm president of the Arnie Haynes Fan Club, number 206. Ah, uh, yes. Back when fan clubs not only existed, but also had chapter numbers. Mr. Haynes, we came all the way in from Philadelphia just to see you. Some of the kids are from your hometown. I know, I've seen them. But it wasn't possible to get into the theater, so we thought we could see you here. Arnie gives a tepid but warm response, which is then followed by this wooden line from Alan Freed that has serious puppet master vibes. You did right, honey. Arnie's always glad to say hello. Seeing these fans from his hometown, though, makes Arnie homesick, and he and his band decide they want to cancel their shows scheduled for the summer and go back home for vacation. Freed is upset because this would mean not only a loss of revenue, but also a loss of goodwill with all those venues who, you know, obviously would frown on their star backing out on them. But Haynes and his boys are adamant. So when they return to their hometown, um, unfortunately, they find a plot line that will be echoed decades later in Footloose, namely that rock and roll has been banned. You've seen the moral effect it's having on our younger generation. The antagonists who've banned the music within the town become a device for the film to make commentary on how adults of that time treated teens. I will not tolerate such behavior in this town. Go home. Children should be seen and not heard. Boy, there's a quote from the Middle Ages. Among the adults who are an obstacle for Arnie and, by extension, rock music itself, is newspaper columnist Arlene McLean. But McLean has a daughter who is a huge Arnie Haynes fan. Enter the sweet and innocent love interest. Haynes and McLean the Younger, whose name is Francine, strike up a romance, and this leads to a scene of them at the beach together, lying on their towels on the sand with a really awkward, drawn-out portion in which Arnie sings an entire crooner-esque ballad to Francine. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had someone sing to you, but there's a lot of time spent deciding whether or not to make and maintain eye contact. I mean, it's okay for about 10 seconds, and then it just gets painful. Anyway, after what feels like an eternity, the song is done, and they begin talking about rock music and Haynes' singing career. For one thing, Francine is surprised and impressed that Haynes can sing in that croonery style he just exhibited. It's lovely. I didn't know you could sing that kind of a song. And as I play this next clip, I want you to focus especially on Haynes's response. The people who buy my records like rock and roll, the public always decides what kind of entertainment it's going to get. It's a business, just like any other business. Oh, that's for sure. So this was an argument that was often made by defenders of rock against its critics, that they were merely giving the public what they wanted. The teen market demanded rock, so they supplied it. Adam Smith would have approved. But here's where there's this interesting line by Francine as they discuss their frustration with her mom's numerous anti-rock headlines. I think you should play your rock and roll music at a public function. What for? So that my mother can see for herself that your music isn't detrimental to young people. Oh, no deal. Bagley would run us out of town. It doesn't have to be in Millendale. What if your mother doesn't like what she sees? Why couldn't my mother have been the kind who just sits home and does knitting? So you see that in both this film and the one before it, uh, in which there seems to be, uh, I don't know, like a, a, a tug of war in the messaging regarding women's roles and empowerment. On the one hand, you can say that they're being intellectually honest in not portraying all of the conservative characters as anti-rock and all of the more progressive characters as pro-rock. You know, there's a smattering of each on both sides. And this could be because rock really did have both detractors and supporters in every camp and every demographic. Or then again, this line could mean nothing and I'm making more of it than is really there. Who knows? In both movies, though, you'll notice there's not a single glimmer of autonomy or even more than one or two spoken lines by housewife characters. It reinforced the sort of false duality that exists even to this day that in order to have a voice, you must also have a career. 
they decide to put on a show that will show the rest of the country that rock and roll is a safe and sane dance for all young people. It hasn't hurt me any, has it? The problem is finding a venue in a town that has banned rock. In fact, because of McLean's columns, uh, other towns have started banning rock shows, which has conveniently freed up the schedules of Bill Haley, Little Richard, the Trainers, and Dave Apple. I say conveniently because this allows them all to play at Arnie's show that he's trying to put on. The solution of a venue comes in the form of local girl Sunny Everett. Enter the manipulative third point on the love triangle. Sunny's father owns a venue, and she is also an Arnie Haynes fan. She convinces her father to let Arnie do his rock show at his venue, but then when she's alone with Arnie, uses this favor as a means to leverage him into going out with her and appearing at social functions together. Arnie is torn, of course, because he's already going out with Francine. And speaking of Francine, they are able to convince her mother to attend the rock show as well, hoping to convince her that rock isn't so bad after all. It's during an exchange between Arnie and Arlene that you get glimpses of not only how much of the public felt about rock's longevity, but also how many musicians within rock saw their own careers. I'm very sorry you don't think as much about rock and roll as your daughter does, McLean. Oh, she's very young. She'll get over it. What happens to you, Mr. Haynes, when the public gets over rock and roll? Well, if they ever do, then I'll go back to singing romantic ballads. So when Haynes says he'll go back to singing romantic ballads, that was how quite a few early rockers really felt. You might remember that even Earl Palmer, Little Richard's drummer, echoed similar sentiments to both this and Arnie's earlier line about just playing what the public wants to hear. Palmer said the same thing in his interview, that he and a lot of his colleagues started as jazz musicians and became rock musicians because that was where the money was, but they all planned on going back to playing jazz, and many of them did, especially when jazz experienced a sort of renaissance in the 1960s. Anyway, the rock show, of course, goes awry, but this isn't because of the rockers. What happens is Sonny tries to put the moves on Arnie. He rejects her advances, which triggers the obligatory woman-spurned motif, leading her to get drunk and go to the town's mayor... What is it? What do you want? It's Sonny Everett, Mr. Bagley. What's wrong? Is your father sick? No, he's fine. I just thought you ought to know, Mr. Bagley. There's a rock and roll show going on at the Palladium. Well, has your father gone crazy? Well, he needed the money, but I don't think he knew what he was letting himself in for. It's a mess, Mr. Bagley. Drinking and everything. Real sinful. Sinful, I knew it. Then she goes back to the show, manipulates two boys into brawling, which then spreads to everyone else also brawling, leading to this conclusion being drawn by the local authorities when they show up. It's a riot! So what is this demonstrating here? The very thing that rockers and rock supporters had been trying to tell people all along, that the riots at their shows were not their fault, but due to other circumstances. This sentiment is captured in this line given by Arnie during a phone conversation the next morning. Yeah, Ted. Yeah, I know, but the whole thing was a frame-up, I'm telling you. That crazy Everett kid. Arlene McLean is merciless in her treatment of Arnie and the show with her headlines the next day. Everyone is pretty frustrated, of course, and they sort of take it out on Francine when she stops by Arnie's place to try to talk him and Freed and all the others out of giving up. If you're going to say something, get it over with in a hurry because we're leaving. You're quitting? Let's just call it a strategic withdrawal. But that would be admitting that they're right. And again, her argument is meant as a mouthpiece for the arguments of rock supporters all around. Francine is able to convince them to never give up, never surrender. And they decide to put on one more show. This one is a little different, however. They decide to do something a little more demure. It starts with a series of live depictions of paintings by Vermeer and Renoir, demonstrating how hard up people were for entertainment if they thought reenactments of paintings was a hoot, followed by a minuet dance performance. 
the snooty, stodgy, humorless adults in the audience love this, of course. And one of them even comments, Wonderful, wonderful. Now that's the way dancing should be done. Like civilized people. Oh, dad. But then Alan Freed, who is uh, the host of the show, announces that they're taking the audience on a journey through the history of dance. The next segment of the show is a bunch of flappers doing the Charleston, which was the very dance from the youth of those adults in that room. The point of it is to show a stark contrast between dance from a couple centuries before, the minuet, and those adults' own youthful days, the Charleston. You yourselves used to do. We thought it would bring back many pleasant memories for all parents to show them that they really need not worry so much about our younger generation. For it will grow up to be the same fine sort of people that parents are today. Young men, you planned this whole thing deliberately. You're trying to confuse the issue about rock and roll. This is where Arlene McLean catches on and is finally convinced and gives voice to the very thing the entire movie is hoping that everyone in the audience will likewise think. Um, I think that uh, maybe we're the ones who try to confuse the issue, Mr. Bagley. My own daughter made one point very clear to me. She told me that we were just trying to find a scapegoat for our own shortcomings in bringing up our children. Rock and roll happened to be handy, so it was picked to get the blame. I say we're wrong, and I'm ready to admit it. And once again, you'll notice that juvenile delinquency is at the center of the argument. But it's interesting to note that Freed's own father would echo this same sentiment. Uh, I'm going to borrow again uh, from Jackson's Big Beat Heat. In the Paramount audience for one of Freed's Labor Day shows were the DJ's parents, Charles and Maude Freed, who had boarded a Greyhound bus and made the 400-mile trip from their beloved Salem to view one of Freed's rock and roll shows. In his son's dressing room between shows, the soft-spoken Charles said that his son had given his young audience, quote, a most important release for the frustrations brought on by my generation, end quote. As for his son's attackers, the elder Freed said he wished, quote, those who spend their time attacking our country's teenagers would spend that energy in righting their wrongs instead of passing them along to the young generation of rock and roll fans. After Arlene's monologue, everyone else in the room conveniently agrees with her, and the movie closes with one final rock number, which now even the adults allow themselves to enjoy. It's a super quick and easy plot wrap-up, but the point of the movie, of course, wasn't really to tell a story, but rather to promote a message. So this is where I'll seemingly go down a tangent, but you'll see why I'm doing it in a moment. I'm sure many of you have noticed on Netflix or other streaming services the amazing array of knockoff movies out there seeking to mimic the originals. Like, for example, Kung Fu Panda had not just one, but at least seven knockoffs. Uh, in fact, Ted Nivison did a pretty funny YouTube video essay on this called, fittingly, Terrible Kung Fu Panda Knockoffs. And one of the knockoffs he discusses is a movie called Prodigy. To give you an idea of how bad it is, I'll share this clip of Nivison reading and discussing the synopsis. This movie is the only knockoff where the panda is not actually the main character, but rather a really strange and annoying supporting character. Let's read the synopsis to give you an idea of the film. An animated action comedy that follows the quest of a young panda girl named KG, the Kung Fu Girl. Okay, so there's already problems in the synopsis, so that's good. So they say panda girl, but she's definitely human and also kung fu girl you couldn't think of a name so you made her name an abbreviation of kung fu girl with the help of her brave yet zany master panda kg must rescue the handsome prince poe and restore justice to her beautiful kingdom during her adventure kg learns that there is no limit to what she can accomplish if she believes in herself hell yeah there are plenty of other knockoffs out there of course of other movies but that gives you an idea of what i'm talking about so 
With that in mind, I'm going to read this quote from Jackson's book. The surprising success of Rock Around the Clock caused other film studios to jump aboard the rock and roll bandwagon. Freed had no sooner completed filming Don't Knock the Rock than he signed a deal with the Independent Distributor Corporation of America to star in another rock and roll movie to be called Rock, 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 produced by Milton Subotsky and Max J. Rosenberg for Vanguard Productions. Rock, Rock, Rock was intended to hit the nation's theaters before Don't Knock the Rock's scheduled February 1957 premiere. Completed in less than two weeks, Rock, Rock, Rock had all the markings of the rush job that it was. And I'll tell you, Jackson is being generous by calling it a rush job. It's more of a botched job, <laughs> but that's, that's crazy to think about. Don't Knock the Rock was filmed first, but Rock, Rock, Rock was released first. Uh, I mean, it was only one week first, but still, it was first. We see the same sort of thing all the time, though, right? Like, think about the dual releases of Armageddon and Deep Impact, or Ants and A Bug's Life, or The Prestige and The Illusionist. But what makes this situation stand out from those others that I listed is the fact that Alan Freed starred in both films. We didn't get Bruce Willis in both of those end-of-the-world films, nor did we get Richard Kind in both of the bug-themed films. Though, that would have been nice, because I can't get enough of Richard Kind. I just wanted to thank you for giving me a chance. And we certainly didn't get Christian Bale or Hugh Jackman in both of the Magician movies. Freed was excited to do this third film, however, um, and not just because it was more money and more exposure. The producers of Rock, Rock, Rock allowed Freed to choose himself the musical lineup as opposed to Columbia Pictures, who, you know, they may have consulted Freed, but ultimately they're the ones that made the final decisions. So in Rock, 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 um, you know, would you like to guess who was the first rock act chosen by Freed to star in the movie? If you said Moon Glows, you win the prize. And the prize, of course, is having the satisfaction of knowing you were right. However, Freed did hook up a number of other well-deserving acts to appear in the film, including Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, who, of course, performed their massively influential hits Baby Baby and I'm Not a Juvenile Delinquent, uh, as well as Laverne Baker, who performed her hit Tra-La-La, which, in my opinion, was an unfortunate choice because it, it wasn't really a good embodiment of her output and... It really represents more of a novelty song than a representative piece for her. Uh, but perhaps the most noteworthy artist featured in the movie is Mr. Johnny B. Good himself, Chuck Berry, who even shows off his famous duck walk around 23 minutes into the film. Other artists include Cyrano and the Bowties, uh, the Johnny Burnett trio, Jimmy Cavello and the House Rockers, the Flamingos, and then, of course, the aforementioned Moonglows. I should also insert, I don't mean to give the Moonglows short shrift in the way that I talk about them. They really were talented performers. I mean, Freed chose them for a reason, but it just kind of makes me laugh as I look at Freed's blatant leveraging of them as a hopeful cash cow all the time. But moving on, once again, uh, I love Jackson's overall take on the movie. Uh, so I'm going to quote from Big Beat Heat again. The movie starred Teddy Randazzo and the 16-year-old Tuesday Weld in her screen debut. As nonsensical as Rock, Rock, Rock's plot was and involved the purchase of a high school prom dress, the acting was worse. Since Weld's singing ability ranked below her acting talent, an unknown singer named Connie Francis sang the soundtrack vocals, which were then ineptly dubbed into the film. We get our first taste of this dubbing during the opening scene where Tuesday's character, named Dory Graham, is asked by her friend Arabella if she's in love with Tommy, the boy who's taking Dory to prom. Are you in love with Tommy? Well... minute song, the dialogue resumes with this. Well, 
how I feel. So to demonstrate how something like that would go down in real life, I will do it with this example. Bruh, do you want to get pizza for dinner? Well, I really like pizza. Sometimes I even dip it in ranch. Three minutes later. But if you're asking what I want for dinner, then I guess I won't get much thinner unless I say yes. To pizza. And that's just how I feel. Okay, like a simple yes or no would have sufficed. Yeah, I know the lyrics didn't make any sense. I thought about making it a full three minute song, but I didn't want to subject my listeners to 180 seconds of my singing voice. But you get the point. Anyway, right there with that open number in this movie, we see something else that makes rock, rock, rock different from the other two movies. It's a musical. However, yet again, we are presented with a storyline that features two girls chasing one guy. You see, Dory and Tommy are going steady, but there's a new girl in town, Gloria. And Arabella warns Dory that Gloria is the type of girl who gets what she wants. And at that moment, Gloria wants Tommy. This sends the insecure Dory into a bit of a tailspin as she quickly finds herself in an unspoken competition with Gloria as she becomes concerned that Gloria is going to swoop in and convince Tommy to take her to prom instead of Dory. Gloria actually makes her first move uh, on Tommy in this, this scene, which features some of the greatest acting you'll ever see. Hello, Gloria. Gad, what a day I've had. I went to the dress shop this morning to order a new evening dress for the dance. I don't know why, I just love that delivery. Gad, what a day I've had. Anyway, Gloria obviously senses Dory's uh, inferiority complex and applies pressure, emphasizing the fact that her dress is not only more fabulous than anything Dory could afford, but also strapless. Pilot to navigate This leads to Dory asking her dad for money in order to buy herself an equally nice prom dress, also strapless. The problem is she's already blown through her allowance for the week and her dad, who wears his pants nearly up to his nipples, is very conscientious about teaching his daughter how to budget money and appreciate its value, which, I mean, I'll be honest, as a dad myself, I must admit I applauded him for this. Now, I also have to admit, I had a hard time wrapping my head around the hullabaloo over $30. I mean, inflation has skewed my view of what money meant in 1950 dollars, so I had to Google it. Uh, one website said that it's $338 today, and another one said that it's $332 today, so we'll split the difference and say $335. So I'll be honest, if my daughter asked me to buy her a dress that cost $335, there's no way on God's green earth I would say yes. The dad's reaction in the movie actually pales in comparison to what mine would be. <laughs> Luckily though, I, my daughter has never asked me for that much money for a dress. He does come up with what I feel is a pretty good compromise though, telling Dory that if she earns $15 on her own, he would pay the other $15, which would be about, you know, $166 today. That's something I can get behind. I remember doing a similar thing when my son was much younger and wanted to buy a new video game console. And we struck up a deal that if he earned half, we would pay the other half. And to his credit, he did it. He earned half the money, and I in turn not only paid the other half, but also reaped payment through playing video games on it as well. Although I think my son still had the last laugh. Um, I remember this was also about the time when he surpassed my skills. And in a humbling moment of PvP, he absolutely destroyed me. I'd basically helped fund the very instrument of my downfall. This is where the film becomes a sort of educational reel on banking and money management. And Dory engages in a series of schemes to come up with the money. Initially, she tries to get a loan from a bank. However, she finds out it's much more complicated than she anticipated. 
The meeting isn't a waste, though, because it gives her an idea for her next scheme. Suppose some person came along and charged less interest than you do. Well, I bet pretty soon they'd take all your business away from you, wouldn't he? Mr. Bimbo, you've given me something more valuable than money. You've given me knowledge. Thank you, Mr. Bimbo. So with that final line that sounds like something out of an after-school special, Dory decides to open up her own bank and convinces Arabella to give Dory her savings in order to fund this bank, which Dory then uses to fund a loan she generates for Gloria with a steep 100% interest rate, the collection of said interest being what Dory believes will give her the funds she needs for her half of the dress's cost. So she kind of missed her calling as a CEO for Lehman Brothers. Dory's stratagem goes horribly wrong, of course. First off, Dory doesn't fully understand that she's charging 100% interest. By the way, Gloria, do you need money? I always need money. Then I'm the one who can lend it to you. I've just gone into the banking business. What? I'm lending money, one dollar until next allowance day, to anyone who needs it. What's your rate of interest? Well, the bank charges as high as six percent, but I'm only charging one. Just one percent? If I lend you a dollar, you pay it back to me, plus another dollar interest. Another dollar interest? It's a bargain when you think the banks are charging as much as six percent. Are you sure you're charging one dollar interest on a dollar? One percent of a dollar is a dollar, isn't it? Oh, sure, sure. Tell me, Dory, have you lent much money yet? You're the first person I've asked. Mm-hmm. Where'd you get the money to lend? From Arabella. She's my depositor. How much did she deposit? Fifteen dollars. Dory, instead of trying to find a lot of little one-dollar customers, how would you like to lend the whole 15 to just one person? Who? Me. And Gloria isn't stupid and senses Dory's naivete and, as you heard in that clip, decides to play along at first in order to then flip the script on Dory and make her look like, you know, a good-for-nothing loan shark to Tommy, who, in his disgust, would agree to take Gloria to prom instead of Dory, as illustrated in this Oscar-winning performance. Tommy, can I ask you something? Sure. Come here. Tommy, what do you think the school would think of a girl who took advantage of one of her own classmates? Well, I guess they wouldn't like her very much. Suppose this girl learned that one of her classmates needed money very badly and she lent it to her. Well, that's not taking advantage. That's pretty nice. But what if she lent it to her on condition that she'd pay it back double? Double? Who do a thing like that? Dory. Dory? Oh, I don't believe it. You can ask her. But why? She was just trying to make some money for herself. Who told you all this? I'm the one she lent the money to. That's terrible. Would be even more terrible if the whole school found out about it. Of course, I might be persuaded not to tell anyone about it. What do you mean? Well, if you took me to the prom instead of Dory, I might just possibly forget the whole thing. In her despair over Tommy choosing instead to take Gloria to prom, Dory pulls a Disney move and goes out to nature to talk to animals and sing a song. Poor little bird. I know just how you feel. 
In the end, Gloria's manipulation of Dory is exposed. Dory's naivete is forgiven and she is able to purchase the dress, eliciting this man-pleaser line from Dory that would make Gloria Steinem throw up. A blue strapless dress. Tommy's favorite color. So Tommy takes Dory to prom after all, and the prom's music is, of course, a series of performances by some of the featured artists in the movie, including... Freed <laughs> was certainly nothing if not a salesman. So I will add uh, this this film. Um, the producers never renewed the the licensing on it, so it is in the public domain. Which um, just with how bad it is and the fact that it is public domain, I kind of want to reach out to the guys that do Mystery Science Theater three thousand and uh, see if I can convince them to to riff on it. But anyway, of these three Freed films that we discussed, um, Don't Knock the Rock leaned the heaviest into its messaging, with Rock Around the Clock coming in a distant second and Rock, Rock, Rock not even bothering to do so in the slightest. While Freed and movie producers couldn't recreate the success they'd enjoyed with Rock Around the Clock, this certainly opened the door for Rock to be featured more regularly in mass media. And this actually reminds me of what my mom said in my interview I did with my parents uh, back in season one in which she pointed out how she saw Rock's early success being in large part due to its exposure uh, in mass media, which no other music genre had been able to enjoy to an equal degree beforehand. And part of this is because rock music happened to be born shortly after mass media's own birth. More crucial to this, however, was Rock's birth coinciding with the birth of the teen market. But this wraps up our review of Freed's first three films, which also means we'll be tabling our coverage of Freed's life and career for a while. The next few episodes will be focused on artists that not only paved the way for Elvis Presley, but also, more importantly, for rock music to go from being ignored by major record labels to becoming practically their sole focus. The story of rock is really going to start heating up, so don't miss it. And until next time, keep it deep. Rock and roll is a river of music which has absorbed many streams. Rhythm and blues, jazz, ragtime, cowboy songs, country songs, folk songs, all have contributed greatly to the big beat. God, what a day I've had.